0: Let's hear God's word now from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kileon, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people "'by giving them bread. "'Therefore she went out from the place where she was "'and her two daughters-in-law with her. "'And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. "'And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each to her mother's house. "'The Lord deal kindly with you "'as you have dealt with the dead and with me. "'The Lord grant that you may find rest "'each in the house of her husband.' "'So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices "'and wept, and they said to her, "'Surely we will return with you to your people.' But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from you, from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there... Will I be buried? The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened, when they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Ruth chapter 1. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its depth, for its riches, for its variety. We thank you for the many ways in which it communicates to us. And we thank you now for the story of Naomi and Ruth. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we begin to consider this book, to consider it with open hearts, not to be lulled by familiarity into losing the lessons that you have for us today, but to draw from your word, Comfort and patience and hope according to the purpose for which it was written. May the Lord Jesus be glorified as we hear his voice from his word. In his name we pray. Amen. The book of Ruth is a masterpiece. It's often one of people's favorites. It's just, on the face of it, a lovely story, a story that's easy to follow. The plot is simple. It's a story that has a happy ending. It's a story that really doesn't have any bad guys in it. So whatever it loses in terms of conflict and drama, it makes up for in sweetness, in peace, in restfulness. But that's our experience as we read this story that has a great deal of dialogue. Of course, for the characters in the story, it may be true there were no enemies. But that doesn't mean There was no hardship. Who is the central character in the book of Ruth? Well, sometimes there's some argument about that. The book is named after Ruth, and appropriately so. But really, it's the story of Naomi even more than Ruth. Ruth comes into the story. Ruth is a catalyst for change. Ruth is God's agent in this story, which has its own lessons and is surprising in its own way, given the emphasis that Ruth is a Moabitess, a descendant of Lot's incestuous relationship with his own daughters. Somebody of whom it was specifically said that a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. So there's a surprise there in God's choice of agent. But the framework of the story, the movement of the story, is from Naomi empty and embittered to Naomi full and blessed and taking care of her grandchild who has become the restorer of her old age as well as an ancestor of David. So if you wanted to call it the book of Naomi, that wouldn't be inaccurate. It would tell you who is the point of view character here. But it's called the book of Ruth because Ruth is the person through whom God works to bring about return and reversal. Of course, there's also another major character. His name is Boaz, but he doesn't show up in chapter 1. He doesn't appear on the scene until chapter 2. Now, those of you who are familiar with my approach to the Bible are probably not surprised to find out that it's going to take more than one sermon to get through Ruth chapter 1. What we're doing this morning is we're going to look at things, first of all, from Naomi's point of view. But Ruth's first words in this chapter are so important, we're going to have to come back later on down the road on another week and look at those in more detail as well. But from the standpoint of Naomi, the point of view character for the whole book of Ruth, what is chapter one about? What happens here? Well, first of all, she loses her home. There's a famine in the land of Israel. There's a famine that reaches Bethlehem. And that's a little bit ironic because Bethlehem means house of bread. Bread, of course, being used as an expression for all the food that you need. Like when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're not just asking for a loaf of wonder bread, we're asking for the whole meal, right? Well, in the house of bread, there's not enough to eat. And so this particular family goes away. They go to Moab, they go to foreign territory. They go to territory where a different god is acknowledged and worshiped, a false god named Chemosh, but a different god. The name of the Lord is not invoked in that land. And they stay there about 10 years. They settle down there. It would not seem that it was part of the plan to go back to Bethlehem. So Naomi begins this chapter losing her home. Now, the way it's expressed, it sounds like Elimelech, her husband, made the decision, and so he decided, they moved, the whole family went with him. And then the man who made this decision died. Well, they've settled down in Moab at this point. The two sons get married to two Moabite girls, and everything we know about them seems to indicate that they were very nice girls. So Naomi has lost a husband, but she's gained two daughters-in-law, and of course, The family is together. She's being provided for. But then her two sons die. Well now, Naomi has lost her home and all the men in her life. This is a sweet story. It's a story without conflict in a lot of ways. But don't lose sight of that background of loss. Sometimes commentators, preachers, or others are kind of hard on Naomi for the things she says. Well, I would like to ask them if they have lost their entire family before they weigh in on, is Naomi really responding appropriately? How would you respond to the loss of your entire family? We can cut her some slack. That is a huge deal. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have sons. Is she heart? Yes. Is it okay that she's heartbroken? Also, Yes. Naomi has suffered significant loss. She's not alone. Loss is a part of life. Terrible tragedy does strike. And sometimes you have one tragedy on top of another, on top of another. Presumably, when her husband died, she said, Well, that was sad, but I have my boys. And then one boy dies. She said, Well, I still have the... Well, then he died too. And there's been no grandchildren. So Naomi has lost all the men in her life. She's also lost the hope of family in the future. Where's this family going to come from? She doesn't have a husband. Her daughters-in-law don't have husbands. They didn't have children before the husbands died. So at this point, the family line is extinct. There is no hope for the future. Naomi has lost her home, her family, and her hope. It's not a surprise. When she describes herself as empty, it's not a surprise when she herself says that she's bitter. It's not even a surprise when she says that the hand of the Lord has been heavy against me. In one sense, she's absolutely right. She had experienced tremendous loss. Our first response to that, of course, is sympathy for Naomi. Not that it does her any good. This is all a long time ago. But one of the purposes of stories is to help us to see things from somebody else's point of view. It's to help us to relate to people whose experiences we haven't gone through. One of the things we absolutely should learn from Naomi is the cost, the toll that it takes to suffer this kind of loss. And so we should learn to be patient, to be kind, to be gentle with those who are grieving, with those who have lost everything. Grief is hard. Loss is hard. You have to give people time. You have to give people space. You have to give people the comfort and support of just sitting and listening, keeping them company, being there for them, without a lot of advice, without a lot of, well, you could feel better tomorrow if you would just. Maybe they would, but that doesn't mean they're able to do that right this second. Loss takes a toll, and Naomi has lost much. Well, she hears some news. She hears that the Lord had visited his people. In other words, God had been gracious. The famine was over. That was probably connected. the, The famine was probably connected to there not being enough rainfall. And so when the rain returned, when they started to have more rain again, you knew that food was coming back, that there would be A harvest. So she set out to go, and her daughters-in-law, assuming, hey, we're part of the family now, they set out to go with her. And that brings us to our second point about Naomi's departures. And that's probably not the most ideal word. It's just the best word I could come up with at the time. Naomi is leaving her new home in Moab. But then she's also trying to get her daughters to leave her. So in a sense, Naomi is compounding her losses by... Returning. Now, why does she do that? Sometimes people do that because they get into a despairing mood and it doesn't matter, you know, there's no hope, nothing good ever happens, so let's just blow everything up. Let's just burn everything down right now. Some people think that that was Naomi's mood, but I don't think so. I think that she believes she's doing the best she can for her daughters-in-law. If they're attached to her, what is their life going to be like? Well, it's going to be a life of barrenness. It's going to be a life of poverty. It's going to be a life of scraping by to make, thing, to make ends meet. She doesn't have anything to offer them. So that's the bottom line. She's saying to them, don't stick with me because I can't give you a good life. I don't have anything to give to you. I don't have more sons to bring forth. I don't have a husband. I don't have anything. Go back to your mom's house. Let her make arrangements for you to get married again. And then have a good life, according to the terms of the time, with husband, children, and friends. Among your own people, where you're known, where you're familiar, where you know how to survive. I think Naomi, then, is trying to do the right thing for her daughters-in-law. She blesses them. She says, the Lord deal kindly with you. She recognizes that they were good wives, as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. And if you think about it, that must have been a pretty happy family before they all died, or before all the men died, because these daughters-in-law love her, they travel with her, they cling to her. It's not easy to make them go away. In fact, she can only make one of them go back away, even though she gives a really good argument. It's apparently been a household that has experienced the Lord's kindness In some ways, they've experienced the Lord's kindness in one very significant way. They have been kind. They have been gracious to one another. In other words, this is a a family that had genuine love in it, genuine love and concern for one another. But now all the men are dead. Naomi has nothing to offer them, so she says, go away. And she has to persuade them. She has to twist their arms. A little bit. I think she must have been a good mother in law. Not the stereotypical mother in law, but one who really welcomed and embraced and loved her daughters in law. One who was kind and considerate to them, or I don't think it would have been this hard to make them go away. So, this was a family that had known God's blessing. And Naomi is still trying to do the right thing by them. Now, she's not right about that. She makes a mistake in her calculations, but I think it's a sincere mistake. I think it's a mistake born out of thinking, well, my future is bleak, and I want them to have a brighter future than I do. So she gives them the advice she can give to accomplish that. Well, Orpah goes away, and Orpah disappears from the story. We don't know what happened to her. She went back to her mother's house, presumably. Did her mom manage to find another husband for her? We don't know. What was her She disappears from the story. She disappears from the Bible. Orpah is never mentioned again. Ruth remains, and Ruth returns with Naomi. But we're going to talk about Ruth and Orpah more next time. So Naomi goes back to Bethlehem. And when she comes... The whole city is stirred. Remember, this is a small town. This is not a big place. Everybody knew everybody else. And when Naomi comes back, that fact can't be concealed. And so there's a hubbub, and they say, is this Naomi? And she says, oh, don't call me that. Naomi means pleasant. She went out full. She says full, obviously not in the sense of having enough to eat because there was famine, right? So they left to go to Moab to get more to eat but full in the sense of she had a husband. She had two children. She had hope for her future. But now she's been brought back empty. She has nothing. That brings us to our third point about Naomi's perspective on these losses. Now, we've touched on this already a little bit, but just to bring it out more fully, what does Naomi believe? What is her reaction to all of this loss that she has experienced? Well, she thinks it has made her empty. She thinks she has nothing left. She thinks that her whole life has been embittered. She wants to change her name from Pleasant, Naomi, to Bitter, Tamara. Why? Because she's finding her identity at this point in bitterness, in the hardship, in the loss that she has experienced. In other words, she's identifying herself by the downsides, by what she's, what she no longer has, by what she's lost. That can be something that happens when people go through a great crisis, a great tragedy, a great loss. They identify themselves solely with relation to that. If you survived some natural disaster, you might say, well, I'm one of the survivors of the great earthquake. I better be careful in picking a year or people will think I'm making a prediction. I'm a survivor of the great hypothetical earthquake that didn't happen of 2022 or whatever else it may be. Well, even if you define yourself as a survivor rather than as a victim of that circumstance, what are you doing? You're finding your identity in the crisis, in the tragedy, in the loss. But that's not really your whole story, is it? That wasn't Naomi's whole story. She had been pleasant. She had been full. But even when she was full, there were problems. There was a famine in the land. And now she says, I'm empty. I've come back with nothing. How do you think that made Ruth feel when she's standing right there? When she's made this amazing expression of loyalty, wherever you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. Nothing but death will part us. Ruth has made one of the most amazing expressions of commitment you can find in the whole of the Bible or in the whole of literature. And Naomi says, I don't have anything. Her sense of loss, her sense of embitterment has blinded her To the reality, there is still a blessing. There is still a hope. At the end of the book, people are going to say that Ruth is better than, is it seven or is it ten sons? I need to double check. Remember what the exact number is. But Ruth was the key to Naomi's better, brighter future. And Naomi didn't see it. Well, we can also do that. We can focus on the problems. We can dwell on the negative. We can count up all the downsides and we can overlook the blessing. That's one of the dangers of bitterness. That's one of the dangers of identifying yourself in terms of what you've lost, in terms of what has been taken from you. What has been taken from you may be very real. It may be very significant. I'm not trying to go back on what I said earlier about the need for understanding, about the need for compassion and for patience. Not at all. But in a state of bitterness, we can make our problems worse. Not necessarily by exaggerating how bad the problem was. Sometimes it's not necessary to exaggerate at all. It was really very bad. Losing a husband and two sons is really terrible. But Naomi made it worse than it had to be because she forgot that there were also blessings. She overlooked the reality of Ruth standing by her side or just behind her. Now, part of Naomi's perspective is that God had done this. And the book doesn't disagree with that. There was famine in the land, and then the Lord visited the land. The Lord was in control of when there was and when there wasn't famine. God was in charge of the rain. Well, who was in charge of whether there were children or there were not. At the end of the book, God gives Ruth conception. Children were his blessing. So what is it when children die? What is it when Ruth and Orpah, for apparently about 10 years' worth of marriage, do not have any children? Well, that's also under God's control, isn't it? If God is in control of sending rain to bring about food and granting conception then what are we going to say when that doesn't happen? Well, we can't accept that from God's control. God is still in charge. So Naomi says, the hand of the Lord has been heavy against me. She also says, the Lord has testified or has answered against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. Now, we want to be careful here. In one sense, Naomi is right. Who was in charge? Who allowed all these afflictions to come into her life? Well, we see this in the book of Job. God didn't send the whirlwind that flattened the house of Job's son and killed all his children, but God allowed the devil to send it. God didn't smite Job's body with wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, but he allowed the devil to do it. God didn't send the Sabaeans to kidnap all of Job's camels, but God allowed the devil to do it. You remember, Satan comes and says, The only reason Job serves you is because you protect him. God says, Okay, I'll withdraw my protection to this extent. Job passed that test, so the devil tries to make it harder. Well, from the book of Job, then, you can see Naomi has a point. This is the problem of monotheism. This is the problem of believing in only one God. We, if we believe that He's in control of everything, then we don't have the option of getting God off the hook by saying, well, he would like to help, but he can't. That's not one of the options that the Bible leaves open for us. So Naomi has to wrestle with that. Now, right now, she seems to be understanding this in terms of God is against me. And that, I think, is where there's some grounds to push back. There's some grounds to criticize Naomi. She saw that God was in charge. She was right. She saw that things had not gone her way, and she was right. She saw that her life had been hard, and in all of that, she was very right. But then she drew the conclusion, God is against me. God doesn't like me for some reason. And there she was wrong. Well, you understand how she got there. You've probably done the same thing yourself when life gets hard. You've wondered, why is God unhappy with me? It's an easy mistake to make. And it takes real faith not to fall into it. But God's provision for the restoring of Naomi's life was already there. It was there in the shape of this human woman called Ruth. It was there in her remarkable loyalty. It was there in her commitment to Naomi. You see, God works through means. And there's two big lessons from that. One, if God works through the means of human kindness of human love, if Ruth reveals the character of God by her practice of kindness. And you know that word kindness, that's the Hebrew word chesed. Sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes it's translated steadfast love, sometimes it's translated covenant loyalty. In this book, three people are said to show that. Ruth, Boaz, and the Lord himself. When Ruth shows this kind of character, She is showing the character of God. She's showing who God really is. Not an arbitrary, capricious Almighty who's afflicting Naomi for no good reason, but the God of kindness and compassion. Well, then that calls on us to behave this way in our relationships with others, it calls on us to demonstrate kindness to those around us, especially to those in our family, especially to those in the household of faith. But of course, you remember, the Lord Jesus would like us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He generalizes it. He universalizes it. Do our relationships demonstrate hesed, loyalty, kindness? But then the other big lesson from that is a theological lesson. God worked through Ruth to restore Naomi. How does God work Restore us. Well, again, He works through a human person. He works through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're in difficulty, when you're in affliction, when your life is empty, when you feel bitter, is it possible that you're overlooking the reality that Christ is with us? Is it possible that you misinterpret God's actions and God's heart towards you because you've lost sight of the Lord Jesus? He is the great proof of the love of God. God commended his love toward us. God introduced. God let us know about his love for us. How? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you want to know with what eyes, with what attitude God looks at you? Don't consult your heart. Don't consult your experience. Look To the Lord Jesus, that's the answer. That's how God views you. Amen.